All right, well, this morning, I want to uh, invite Tyler Rittenauer to come. Tyler is part of the preaching team here and his fan club. Yeah, no, Tyler, Tyler and his wife, Heidi, have uh, three children. And uh, like I said, Tyler is part of the preaching team here and has been yep. uh, growing in his gifts of teaching and preaching. Mm -hmm. And it's a privilege and honor to have walked with Tyler. And, and I'll just leave, I'll stop right here. <laughs> It's certainly been a privilege for, for me as I've watched Tyler grow in this gift of preaching and, and, uh, and the word. And that is an encouragement to me um, as I also uh, am growing. So, so good. So let's just pray a blessing mm -hmm. with Tyler as he uh, has the word for us this morning. Father, we thank you for Tyler. Father, we thank you for the word that you've laid on his heart, the word that you have given to him to share with us this morning. Father, I pray, Father, for a confidence and a boldness as he shares. Father, thank you that, that the words that he shares, Father, they would not just touch our ears, but that they would speak to our hearts. Lord, that, that you would be uh, challenging us as we grow in our relationship with you. And so we invite you, Holy Spirit, right now, this morning, to be touching us, to speaking to us. We open ourselves up to you, Holy Spirit, to speak deep into our hearts. And we thank you for your goodness to us. In Jesus' name, amen. So I just want to give you guys a little bit of a warning. Um, I was at that football game the other night on Friday night. About, I got about to halftime, and I'm thinking, I probably shouldn't be yelling right now. <laughs> but it was a great game, and uh, that didn't stop me, so <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> it, was, it was good. Dane was, yeah, he was incredible. So, so yeah. So we have a strict rule in my house, our house, that there is no Christmas that happens before Thanksgiving, right? There is no Christmas music, there's no Christmas movies, there's no Christmas decorations, because in my house, it would be Christmas season all year round. We love it. So now... Thanksgiving's over, Christmas time is here, it is time to be excited. So, yeah, this year, uh, this season we're going to go through and talk about how God spoke through uh, the story and of Jesus Christ's birth. And we'll start at the very beginning, because that's always the place we have to start. We'll start all the way at Genesis. Because there's over 300 prophecies of the life of Jesus. 300 prophecies that were fulfilled by Christ's life. Jesus' life, his birth, and his uh, resurrection. It's crazy because Genesis happened 4,000 B.C. or so. And then Moses was like 1,500 B.C., Micah the prophet, like 740 B.C., and Isaiah, 690. And Christ was born about 5, 5 B.C. So the whole Old Testament is pointing to this one man, this one man that was to be born and to save, save us from our sins. Since the beginning of time, since 
the very first human sinned, God was already making a plan. God was already knowing and making this plan. In Genesis 3.15. But before we get going into the, the, the scripture, I've heard a pretty cool story. And I think, yeah, about two writers. One was C.S. Lewis and make sure we get his, all of his initials, J.R.R. Tolkien. Yeah, Tolkien. They're both writers. One was Chronicles of Narnia, and the other one was Lord of the Rings, the Hobbit trilogy. A bunch of books. bunch of books. Tolkien's books came out on either side of World War II. The Hobbit came out in the 30s, and then... Right. Yep. Hold on, dude. I got to. Yep. <laughs> um, so, and then the Lord of the Rings came out in the 50s. So they came out on either side of World War II. So everyone just assumed that Tolkien was, write, was writing this as an allegory, as like symbolic symbolism to World War II. You know, how the allies fought against the Axis and won how the good always wins, how the light over darkness. Tolkien's, Tolkien then stated sometime later that he had no um, desire to write about the war. None of it was sim symbolism, symbolic. He just wanted to write a very long book. That's it. He did it. <laughs> And actually, to uh, Elijah's point, it was Tolkien's just wanted it to be one big book. But the publishers actually split it up into three different books to his displeasure. On the other hand, C.S. Lewis wrote the Chronicles of Narnia. And he wanted everything to stand for something. He wanted to write a book that he would be into, his interests, his desires. But more importantly, he wrote it with children in mind, and he wanted a deeper meaning. So everything is allegory. Everything has a symbol for something. It, you don't need to be a Christian to know that. When you watch the movie, Aslan the lion is the savior, is portraying Jesus as the Savior. I want to encourage you, especially when we're reading the Old Testament and the New Testament, but the Old Testament, we're not completely sure of every detail that was going on. We don't know the environment. We don't know all the history or whether it should be read as is or as an allegory. So when you're reading, just keep that in mind. Because just like how C.S. Lewis and Tolkien were two very different writers, both very good. So let's start. Genesis 3, chapters four, yeah, chapter 3, verse 14 and 15. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock. All the wild animals, you will crawl on your belly. And the, 
and the woman belly, and you will eat dust all the days of your life, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her hers, he will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. So this is just seven verses after Adam and Eve sinned. Not much time after sin entered the world, God had already set into motion his plan for salvation. God cursed the Satan or the snake in this story. And he states that he'll put enmity or he'll put hostility between Satan and Eve, between Satan and Eve's offspring, humanity. From the beginning, God was giving us a word God was giving humanity a word for something else to come, a savior. And then we go further in Genesis 49. We're still not far in history. In Genesis 49, Jacob is about, it says, to be gathered to his people or to be gathered with his ancestors. Jacob is about to die, and he's giving one last time to bless his kids, bless his sons. Put hands on them, pray for them. Some of them were blessings, but it was all according to what they've done. And then he comes to Judah, and he says this in Genesis 49.10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh has come. And to him that be the obedience of the people. Do we carry a scepter? I've yet to see a president holding up a scepter. It's kind of a far-off thing for us. But a scepter is a symbol of authority. The king, or whoever would have it, would have this scepter, a symbol of authority. And for them to make a law or a decree or to make something permanent, they had to have this scepter because that was what had the authority. So until Shiloh comes, this is the first time Shiloh is used in the Bible. And it's like a peace giver, a peacemaker, a rightful Messiah. In Genesis 49, it is being stated that there will be something in the future a savior to come in the future. And it's specifically from the, this line of Judah. The people will be under, in obedience to him. Some translations say that Shiloh will actually gather the nations. That Shiloh will gather the nations and will be obedient. Again, it is looking, it is giving hope for persons in that time to look forward to because it was probably a little bit more disorder then. So they were giving hope for the future. Let's look at Isaiah 9, verse 1 to 7. Okay, here we go. This is going to be a long one, but it's pretty important. Nevertheless, 
There will be no gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali. And in the future, he will honor Galilee of, Galilee of the nations. By the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. And those living in the land of the deep rejoice. Or the darkness and the light of dawn. You have enlarged their, the nations and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people that rejoice at the time of the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder from that day, from the, as the day of Midian's defeat. And you shatter the yoke and the burdens and the cross and the bar across their shoulders and the rod of their oppressors. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be disdained for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over the kingdom and establishing and upholding it in justice and righteousness for from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord, God Almighty, will accomplish this. Does that make sense? I, get, I got kind of lost in that. There's a lot going on, a lot to unpack. And there's two things that Isaiah assumes that we know already because we're all biblical scholars, right? The first thing he assumes is we are quite familiar with the geography of Israel. And the second thing would be their history. So Zebulon and Naphtali, they were the northernmost regions of Israel. They were far away from Jerusalem, the main city. So that would be a perfect spot for people to come in from the north and plunder and beat down Benjamin, or yeah, Zebulon and Naphtali. Benjamin's up there too, but no, it's in the text here. Um, they were notorious for being invaded from the north. When Isaiah was writing this, the Assyrians were just got done plundering Israel from the north. And actually, just a short time after this, the, the Babylon, Babylon Empire would have been coming in, and the Roman Empire as well. So that was a spot for, to get it. Uh, yeah, was constantly downtrodden. It was a poor area. the poorest region. But Isaiah says, there will be something better to come. Isaiah declares the opposite of gloom, but joy. So that, then it talks about the joy of the harvest. And many of us aren't farmers, right? Yeah, I don't think, no one's a farmer, right? No. 
But many of us, we don't know the joy of a harvest. Because the joy of the harvest, that's the farmer's whole life. If they couldn't get that harvest in, if there was a wind, rain, whatever, their whole crops would be damaged. That, that's all their finances for that year and any previous years. So I can't, I can imagine that there is quite a bit of rejoicing when all that work is finally done. So the warriors, so they rejoice like the harvest and in the warriors rejoicing after battle. And they're dividing their plunder. And they have, they, so they're rejoicing because they say they survived. And they also get the plunder. One thing that I had to look up is why in the Midian were they so rejoiceful? It was a famous battle that they would have known. But if you guys want to read more about Midian, I'll just give the, the spark notes. If you want to read more about Midian, it's in Judges. I believe it's seven. But God asked Gideon to rise up an army, to raise up an army. Gideon got 32,000 people, 32,000 men to go against the Midian's 135,000. But God was not satisfied with that. God wanted to make sure that no one took this victory besides him. So after a series, God dwindled Gideon's army down to 300 men, just 300 men. Extremely lopsided, but God won. God won the war, and in fact, in Judges, So, yeah, so God won this war. This is the kind of victory that God is, or that Isaiah is portraying right now. It's not like a, a close call, like, well, yeah, we had a lot of people. This is the kind of victory that God wants to do. God is showing the Israelites just how he will break that yoke of burdens. And they're, that thing of the oppressors, that rod and that staff that was oppressing them for years, it will be shattered. So in, in Judges 7, 21, it states this. This is awesome. So while each man held their position around the camp, now 300 against 135,000. 300, 135,000. So while each man held their position around the camp, all the Midianites ran, crying out, and they fled. That's crazy. That's crazy. It would have been awesome to see 135,000 grown men running <laughs> because uh, 300 people are going up against them. That would be a sight to see. God didn't just give them victory, the Israelites, but he also gave everything that they had, it was productive to them. Down to the boots 
and the garments that would have been trashed, they didn't trash them. They, they were able to use them, keep them warm. They were used, cooked their food. They used it for fuel for the fire. How is God going to accomplish this? First, Isaiah 6 and 7. This is like the final portion of this scripture, and it's like the finale. Let's read this again. Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom in establishing and upholding the justice and the righteousness from that time and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. So this is how God is planning to make this happen. A child will be, will be born. We know, we know the outcome. So we already know what's going to happen. We already know he's going to be born, and then he's going to die, and then he's going to raise to life again. But think of what they were thinking about. A child rise. But a child will be born. Those who heard this might be a little skeptical. But he gives them four characteristics. Four characteristics of what this person's going to do. Isaiah describes them as wonderful counselor. He'll be full of wisdom and in, of truth. Mighty God. He will govern with power and strength. He'll be the protector. Everlasting father. He will govern with fatherly love and care, provision. Prince of peace. In every part of his kingdom, there will be no hostility, no chaos. A child is come to come. His government will increase. I don't believe it's a territory increase. Because God already reigns on the throne. He already reigns over the earth, so it might not be a, a territory increase. But his influence will increase. We'll become under his government, under his true peace, the true peace of God. And God's kingdom will not end. And he will be on David's throne forever. This is fulfilling God's promise to David several years earlier. That someone from his line will sit on the throne forever. That narrows down, it can't just be anyone. It narrows it down. God promises to establish and uphold David's kingdom with justice and righteousness from this point and forever. So it won't be a select time. It won't be just for a short time. It will be forever. This confirms who and why King 
these things will happen. And no one else will be able to do this except the Lord Almighty. Because the Lord Almighty is a jealous God. He is jealous for his people. God will put his son on David's throne. And Jesus was born to do this. God sees his people. God sees the affliction of his people. Like in Egypt, he knows what's going on. And even right now, so God sees and hears us. Go to Micah 5, 2. Micah 5, 2. In Bethlehem, Ephrathah. In Bethlehem, Ephrathah. Though you are small among the clans, of Judah, out of you, you will come, yeah, out of you will come for me, one who will rule over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. It's a short verse, but it's just as intense as that last cluster of verses. So let's go. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, Ephrathah. Bethlehem is a little town just south of Jerusalem, about five miles. Hopefully, someday I'll get to go there. But where's Ephrathah? Oh, it's actually the same place. Ephrathah is what they used to call Bethlehem before it was known as Bethlehem. In 1 Samuel 17, 12, it says, date. Now David was on the, was the son of an Ephrathite named Jesse, who was, who was from Bethlehem in Judea. Jesse had eight sons, and in Saul's time was very old. So he's calling out Ephrathah. Ephrathah was more, was an old name for that city. So he wasn't just using an old name. He was reminding us who else was from Ephrathah, Bethlehem. Well, King David was. And since we're all biblical scholars, we all know what God promised David several hundred years before this. Let me refresh our memory. So in 2 Samuel, 7, 11, half of 11 and 12, says this, the Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over, you will rest with your ancestors and I will rise up an offspring to succeed you and your own flesh and blood will, yeah, from your own flesh and blood and I will establish your kingdom. It's a reminder. God's reminding us that he made that promise with King David. He made that promise with David and God has not forgotten it. He, we will see God's words fulfilled. Though you are small among the clans of Judah, 
Out of you will come for me one who is ruler over Israel. There's a connection between the smallest of the clans and the ruler over all of Israel. This is kind of the, the story of the Old Testament. God's making something from nothing. God's making something small. He's making it great. Whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Whose origins from old. If you look into it, it's kind of like they don't really know what's old, like from when. I'll give you two scenarios that I think I like the best. So who, whose origins are from old or ancient times. Whose, it could be talking about a time where God was actually in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. A time where the relationship between God and man were so close. Or maybe even before that, the ancient times. Since God was established well before the earth was. For John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and he, he was with God in the beginning. So let's look at one more cluster of verses. This is just months before the birth of Christ. In Luke, New Testament, Luke 1, 67. So while Zechariah, this is, this is leading up to this, these verses. So while Zechariah was in the temple burning incense, an angel spoke to him and said, you're gonna have a son and you will name him John. Zechariah didn't believe him. And to get his attention, Zechariah became mute until, until John was born. Zechariah was silent. This is what Zechariah said just after he was able to start speaking again. We'll pick it up in Luke 1, 67. So his father, John's father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us and for the house of his servant David, as he said through the holy prophets long ago. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all those who hate us, to show mercy to our ancestors and, redeem, and remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. And you, my child, will be called prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him and to give his people the knowledge of the salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God by which 
the rising, uh, rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. There is a lot of common threads throughout the Bible. There's two that I want to pull out this morning. The first one is hope. A hope for something better to come. In each of these texts, God gave, God prophesied, God gave the word to the prophets to encourage people who are reading it, to give hope, to give them something to hold fast to, even if it was another 300 years before anyone would see the fulfillment. God has the ability to speak through prophets, but he has also the ability to, to speak through us. As long as we're obedient to speak the words that he gives us and walk it out. God wants to speak to his people like he did in the Garden of Eden. Of that I'm sure. We know what happens. We all know what happens with Christ. We know the birth. We know the resurrection. We know what's going to happen. And most of us are excited. We can't even contain it. But I'm not sure how I would have thought if I didn't know the ending of this story. Hold fast to the words, to the hope that God has given us. God is giving us hope for a future, and not a future of this world, but a future under his ruling, because this world is sometimes just not good enough. But this is a promise for under his ruling, and his, his perfect Second thing is he hears us. He wants to know us. He is a God. He's not a God that just exists to exist. Throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, he's constantly saying, I hear you. I hear you. I hear you. In Egypt, he heard their groaning. In the Old Testament, he heard their prayers. He knows Old Testament afflictions. He knows the New Testament afflictions. He knows ours. He hears us. And he cares. If he wouldn't have, he wouldn't have sent anyone to save us. God gives us hope, whether we take the time to listen to him or not. If the worship team and the prayer team want to come up, so that dark place in Isaiah 9, in Zebulun and Naphtali, that, is the very, that dark place in Isaiah was the very place that Jesus started his ministry. Matthew 4, 15 and 17, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee, of the, yeah, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentile, the people, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region of the shadow of death, on them the light has dawned. 
the word that gave people in Isaiah's time hope is being fulfilled by Jesus. So I challenge you this morning and throughout the week, God has a word of hope for you. He does. He has that word that you're desperately needing and desperately desiring. Pursue that, pursue that. God will hear you and he will answer you. So let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we praise you because you are faithful and true from generation to generation. I thank you. I just pray a release of your presence in this place for each person that you would release hope in the name of Jesus. I thank you that you are you hear our hearts. And I pray that you will show us what true hope looks like in the name of Jesus, I pray. If you guys need prayer for anything, pray for hope, for just someone to stand with you as you cry out to God. Prayer team's up here and they would love to pray for you. Amen. Let's worship.